listeners. I hope everything's going well for you and that you're excited to tune into another episode of this show. Whether you be listening from a chair, a sofa, on a walk, at the gym, or in the car. This is Juliana and you're listening to Is This Actually Healthy? Where we address the nitty gritty concepts you need to know to make meaningful dietary changes. Remember a few weeks ago when I said I was planning something special for this show? Well, I have it for you today. I've conducted an interview over Zoom with a special guest, and this interview is going to be featured here on the show. As my first guest, I've interviewed Dr. Robert Davis, an award-winning health journalist whose work has appeared on Time, CNN, WebMD, and even in the Wall Street Journal. The author of three previous books on health, he hosts the Healthy Skeptic video series, which dissects the science behind popular health claims. Today, the focus is on Dr. Davis's most recent book, which I've just recently had the pleasure to read. It's called Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat, and the Truth About What Really Works. This book was released in June of 2021. I had so many questions floating in my head when I read this book, so I was tickled to have the opportunity to uh, have this discussion with Dr. Davis and share it with you. The interview, due to its length, has been split into two parts, the first one being in today's episode, and I'll release the second part of the interview in the next episode. You won't want to miss out on this, so let's get right into it. I am very excited to be able to do a real interview with a professional nutritionist. This is a, a big day for me. Well, it's exciting to talk to you. I really appreciate your, uh, your taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely take the time to pick your brain about some uh, stuff about your book because I really enjoyed your book and I think I learned quite a bit from it. I definitely found some similarities to some of the stuff that you are saying in the book and some of the stuff I've been talking about in my podcast. So I think it's a, it's a really good fit. I was interested... I was kind of doing some research on you, and I see that besides the Supersized Lies book, you have also written three other books. Right. What exactly would you say is your best one? Would you say this latest one is the one that people should read, or do all of them touch very different subjects? Well, in some ways, it's sort of like asking with my favorite child, so I'll have to say I like all of them. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm most excited about the most recent one, Supersized Lies, probably just because it's, it's fresh, it's in my mind. But it is one that I think I was able to delve uh, even more deeply than I have into the research in the other books, because in all the books, uh, what I've done is to look at the research and try to lay it out as honestly and thoroughly as I can uh, to help people figure out what's true and what's not. The previous book was about fitness. The one before that was about nutrition claims. And the first one was looked at health claims generally. But in this one, I look specifically at claims around weight loss. And as we know, there's so much, so many myths, so much misinformation around weight loss and weight management uh, that uh, I had a lot of material. Yeah, your book was uh, very well set up how each chapter would cover something completely different. And each one was very well sourced, which I appreciated because like you said, part of the, the major problem where people get misinformed is that they're just thrown so many different pieces of advice from uncredible sources. And it just becomes a, a mosh pit of people not knowing what they should actually do. In your book, you were really good about using real credible studies to support your point so that people aren't probably thinking, oh, God, this is just another guy spouting out hot air. I think that was one of my favorite parts of the book, being 
being a scientist myself, I like seeing the sources, something to back up what you're saying. Overall, thought, I thought the book was really fantastic and it gave some, some really great advice. I really recommend that my people, my podcast listeners go and check out your book because this can really take a lot of the stuff that I kind of touch on and put it in a lot more detail. I know in your last chapter especially, you had your key takeaway messages. I guess for people who aren't into nutrition right now, or maybe they're new at it, what would you say are the biggest things they can do to start out, to get out there and try something new? Yeah, and I think that's a really important question. And, and I, what I say to people is, number one is don't try to change your eating habits or don't expect to change your eating habits overnight. A lot of these diets, and these, and I talk a lot about different diets, in the book that often fail for people. And the problem with many of them is they expect people to make drastic changes and these changes are not sustainable. And so I think it's really important for people to make small, gradual changes that are realistic for them. So I say, for example, if you're used to eating sweets every day or candy every day, maybe try to cut back uh, to once every other day and eat fruit instead. Um, if you drink soda every day, for example, then try to cut back and, and drink um, water more often, uh, that kind of thing, to make small incremental changes, to incorporate foods that you like that are fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and beans and seeds. It doesn't mean you have to eat foods. If you don't like kale, you don't have to eat kale. If you don't like cauliflower, I don't like cauliflower, you don't have to eat cauliflower, but find foods within those groups, and there are plenty of them that you do like and prepared in a way that you will like enjoy eating them that will help fill you up. And that's and to add those foods to your diet and gradually over time to reduce the foods, the highly processed foods that tend to be associated with poor health and with weight gain to try to gradually turn those into occasional treats rather than everyday staples. So I would say that those are the kinds of small incremental changes that people can do. But as you talk about, I know often it's important to customize it, to find out what's right for you, to find out what you want, the kind of diet, the kind of eating plan eating pattern that's going to work for you personally, which is going to be different than say your friend or your family member. One thing that I think is the most important, I talk a lot about building habits and doing whatever is attainable for you. Would you say that the most important part about making meaningful change in a diet is changing your behavior about how you eat? Yes, and I definitely, because the problem is people try to rely on willpower too often when they're when they're thinking about diet or their, how they're going to eat or weight loss, and that that fails. When none of us can rely on willpower entirely uh, because it's just we're wired to want to eat certain foods, and so exactly, I think that people it's it's all about. Uh, changing habits, looking at it in a way that you have to rely on how you're going to think about food and changing your thinking around that. And I talk in the book about different ways to do that. One way to do that certainly is to keep a food diary. I talk a lot about that. I think that can be very valuable for people to actually write down um, what it is they're eating, not only what they're eating, but what's happening when they're eating. Um, are they, how do they feel? Were they in a hurry? Were they with other people? Um, how did they feel while before they were eating, while they were eating, and after they were eating? So, so to, to track not only what you're doing, but also how you're feeling when you're eating, because with that information, you can go back and identify certain patterns, certain behaviors that surround your eating, and then try to change those behaviors. So I think awareness is the first step, and having a food diary can be very helpful in, in raising that awareness, that self-awareness. Absolutely. I think that a lot of change comes when 
you start to become mentally aware of what you're eating because only then are you starting to hold yourself accountable for it. By keeping that food diary, then you're seeing what you're eating. You didn't just eat something for lunch that maybe was terrible for you and then you forgot about it later. You could look back at it and be like, yep, I ate that thing. I'm thinking about it now. How is this going to affect my my long-term nutrition goals? I've I've really started to think that eating is kind of a behavioral science in a way cuz so much of how we how we eat is determined by our everyday thoughts, our our willpower but also balanced with cravings and there is a lot of thought that goes into it that people don't really think about on a daily basis. The food journal is a way to make people accountable for that for sure. If I could go back to a little bit about what we were saying earlier about changing diet in moderation and that there's a whole bunch of different fad extreme diets out there. A lot of people ask me because it's so popular is that why not just do a keto diet? Why not just have a whole crusade against carbs? People like to tell me that as if Oh, well, that's the only way you can actually lose weight. Doing the whole healthy habit, slow change thing, that's not going to be as effective as just going to a keto diet. What would you tell someone who argues this? I would say that obviously there, there's not just one single path to a, a destination when it comes to eating, uh, but you have to look at the science. And what the science shows is that a keto diet, for example, can be effective in the short term for helping people lose weight, as can a number of other diets. But when it comes to weight loss, at least, the real question is the long term, because this is a marathon, not a spread. And so, when it, but the problem with keto is that for the vast majority of people, even though it may help them lose weight over a few months, six months, even a year, it, it is typically not sustainable over the long term. And so it may be fine for people if they want to sort of kickstart their efforts to lose weight, but they can't see it as a short-term endeavor that they're going to go on a keto diet and then we'll figure out what to do later. So if they see it as a Kickstarter, they have to be prepared to figure out what's the long-term plan. And the long-term plan needs to be focused on your overall eating pattern in the way uh, I just described. So that's the long-term solution to weight management. Uh, the other problem with a keto is that it can involve some, it's not necessarily for people, uh, all people, the healthiest way to eat. So for many people, they end up eating a lot more saturated fat, which has been associated with an increased risk of heart disease. They may not get uh, the other nutrients they need from say whole grains and from fruits. And so that can be a problem that, that, that it can lead to, nutri to nutrient deficiency. So when you think about a diet, I like to think first about health, not about weight loss. It's, it all should be through the prism of health and a keto diet, depending on how you can do it, can be a less than helpful way to eat. I think you really hit the nail on the head here in your book when you were talking about how people really like to find something to demonize. Maybe it's because that makes it easier for them to think about that there's one thing in their diet that's the big enemy that they can target. I guess I was interested more in what are some of the other demon foods that people like to blame for their own lack of results besides just say carbs? Well, you know, for a long time before there was fats, right? We heard for a long time that fat is bad. Before it was carbs, it was fat is bad. So people, there was a whole craze during the 1980s and 90s um, that demonized fat and that it, fat makes you fat and that if you avoid fat, then you will not gain weight. And of course that turned out to be false. Not only uh, was it false, but we ended up eating a lot more processed foods because manufacturers churned out all kinds of low fat and fat-free foods. 
uh, during the 1970s and 80s. And so there's a legitimate argument to be made that that actually made the problem worse. It perhaps contributed to the epidemic of diabetes we've seen. And so that's an example of how demonizing a particular food or group of foods can cause a real problem. I think we've seen in more recent years um, the demonization of sugar. Now, let me say sugar is not healthy. I certainly don't advocate that people should all eat sugar. I think we all, most of us eat too much sugar because it's hidden in all kinds of foods we don't recognize from you know tomato sauce to breads. That said, when someone mm -hmm. says weight is all about sugar, if you'll just cut out sugar, then you will lose weight. That is a gross oversimplification. And when, for example, when we do that, we may end up eating more processed foods that are sugar-free. And again, artificial sweeteners, there's some evidence that they actually may not, uh, may even contribute to weight gain in various ways because they can mess with our brains and uh, cause us to eat more. So there can be negative consequences when we fixate on one particular kind of ingredient in food, in this case, sugar. And, and that leads us to eat other foods that are free of that particular ingredient, but that may not be conducive to good health or to uh, successful weight management. So that's just one example. And I could give you others, but I think that the point is that um, we should be looking at our diets as a whole, uh, to all the ingredients in our diets. That, that includes not only the sugar, the calories, the protein, the fiber, uh, the, the overall nutritional quality of the diet. That's what matters rather than one particular category of foods or one particular constituent in the food. I talked in my show, kind of in my earlier episodes, about how the food industry has ways to, to make us think we're buying healthier foods than we are. So if we are, for example, trying to eat less sugar, then we can look toward these options instead. But a lot of these foods out there can be misleading to us because of bad marketing. And in fact, they're no healthier than the thing that we're trying to avoid. From your book, you say that food companies have financial incentives to feed us lies. Now, what should average consumers like you and I do to be more aware of these marketing tricks and be confident in what we're buying? Yeah, that's a great question. And I can speak to the US. I can't, I'm not familiar with what the laws are and what the marketing rules are in Australia. But I can tell you- I'm not very familiar yet either. I'm still learning. I can't even read a food label entirely just yet. <laughs> well, I can tell you, at least in the US, that um, companies are allowed to make all kinds of claims on the front of the box that are misleading. Uh, and, and they can do this legally. They can use all kinds of terms that, you know, I call, that are called health halos, terms like natural or light or, you know, um, or, organic cholesterol free that may have nothing to do with the overall healthfulness of the food. So, and that leads many consumers to believe if they see these kinds of um, buzzwords on the foods that they're, health, they're more healthful. Um, and when in fact, they're really meaningless. And so I tell people the most important thing is to actually look at the nutrition label, to look on the side of the box at the nutrition label and look at factors, which I just mentioned, such as the amount of added sugar, um, the amount of fiber, the amount of protein, the number of calories, and also look at the ingredient label in terms of just the things that are in there. If it's a long list of unpronounceable names, that's a, that's a warning sign that it's a highly processed food and you should probably try to avoid it. So I think those kinds of clues are the important things to look for rather than the marketing buzzwords that you often see on the front of the box um, that manufacturers, unfortunately, uh, know all too well can be successful at getting people to buy foods thinking that they're helpful. Absolutely. Another thing that will maybe make people buy something, 
even though they don't actually know its nutritional value, is that if something is touted as a superfood, right. how exactly did the superfood thing come to be? How does it influence our choices now? Yeah, super. It's really interesting because we've been hearing for years now that in the in the the list is always changing in terms of what is uh, what is called a superfood, but that these foods have some kind of magical properties. So that when the foods are eaten in isolation, whether it's salmon or blueberries or apple cider vinegar or, or avocado, you name it, all the acai berries. The list goes on and on. That these foods have some kind of health benefits. And so the problem is that. Um, there's really no such thing as a food typically when eaten in isolation that will have some kind of magical health benefits. Now, that's not to say that these foods don't aren't helpful. So most of these foods can be part of a healthful diet. So it's great to eat blueberries. It's avocados can be a very healthful food. All, a lot of these foods, salmon, are good to include in your diet. But I, the problem is that the food manufacturers, in order to increase sales, have uh, have position them as foods that are uniquely beneficial. That if you eat this food, if you eat blueberries, then you'll improve your memory. If, if you eat avocado, you'll lose weight, whatever the case may be. Uh, and often they fund studies that purport to show some kind of benefit from eating the food. And as I talk about in the book, often these studies are designed in a way to produce results that are favorable for the funder, in this case, the food industry. Um, or they're not even in people. They may be in ant lab animals, or maybe they don't really measure what they, they don't measure what they purport to measure. For example, if it's a study supposedly about weight loss, they just measure appetite, but they don't really measure whether people actually lose weight. Uh, but the food is nevertheless uh, uh, promoted as a weight loss food. So there are all kinds of tricks that these uh, marketers will use in the way that they uh, conduct this research or have this research conducted in order to generate headlines that make people believe that the food has some kind of magical property uh, and to buy that food. Yeah, for sure. And I've also seen the same clickbait headlines telling you that you should absolutely avoid this certain food because yeah. so-and-so study found that it actually gives you cancer or something. And I always look at the, that with a skeptical eye because any food that you eat in in moderation or even just little bits of it I don't think that if it's some normal food and not radioactive waste that it's probably going to give you cancer if you ate it once a week exactly so I think again it gets back to instead of looking at individual foods as either heroes or villains the focus needs to be in the overall dietary patterns. Again, that's what that's what really matters, and that's a that's a very important message for people to keep in mind. It's about the overall eating pattern, not about any specific food in the diet, really, that matters. And that will conclude part one of this interview. To hear the rest, please tune into next week's episode, where we'll address even more interesting questions and insights from the book that will undoubtedly help you with your nutritional journey. Just so you know, you can search the book Supersized Lives by Dr. Robert Davis on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. And you can also search the Healthy Skeptic uh, series online to get to his website and YouTube videos. I highly recommend this book, and I'll certainly be looking into some of Dr. Davis's other books as well. I'm wishing you all the best, and I will see you again in part two.